Hi. Oh, good. Okay, you guys are awake. <laughs> I haven't even gotten to the sermon, and you guys are already asleep. <laughs> now, we're starting a new series today. If this is your first time with us, you picked the right Sunday because we're starting a new sermon series. You get to hear us from the very beginning. It's a five-part series, and we're calling it Ecclesia. And if you don't speak Greek, which I would assume is most of us, uh, Ecclesia means church. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the church. Now, the reason why we use the Greek word is because the implication here is I want to talk about the first century church, when the church was birthed and what it meant to the people at the time. Because today, if I were to go down the street and say, hey, you want to come to church with me? They'll be like, church, okay, maybe, I don't know, or maybe not, you know, right? But back then, when you used the word ecclesia, people were like, whoa, what are you talking about the church? Like, it was so controversial at the time, and it was so life-changing, right? But for some reason, over time, we, kind of, we lost the, the, the oomph, you know? We lost that feeling of, wow, church. And so this series is going to take us back to the first century, and we're going to be looking at some of the key things about the, the church in the first century that will, that will make us ask the question, like, like, have we missed it? Have we lost the, the, the true meaning of what it means to be a church? And how far have we, as Westside Community Church, have we deviated from it? Or are we somewhat close or at least in the vicinity of what church was meant to be? And so if, as we're going through this series, you're like, yeah, I don't think Westside meets the mark, then you know, we want to know about it. And we want to become a better church for it because we believe that the church is God's plan A and plan B for this world. And we want to make sure that we live up to the expectation. So we're going to be looking at the first century church, and what I want, I'm going to skip to the end of the message right now, because this is what I want you to know, okay, after, this is what I want you to feel, this is what I want you to know by the end of this message, which is this, wow, the church is remarkable. I want you to feel like, wow, because this is what the first century people thought of when they heard the, the word church. When they heard, they heard the word ecclesia, they're like, wow, that, the church is remarkable. And so in order for me to do that, okay, I'm going to throw a lot of information at you, but I, I know you, you didn't come here to get a lot more information. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you a story. And I'm going to tell you a story that's going to require some of your brain's like, imagination. Okay, so this is how the story starts. And I'm, I don't know if I'm a good storyteller, but I'll give it a try. <laughs> so let's pretend that I have a time machine. I don't care what it looks like. It could look like a DeLorean. It could look like a hot tub. You know, it could look, look like whatever, a phone booth, whatever generation you're from, Okay. If you don't know the reference to that, then... <laughs> okay. Okay. So let's just say we get in this time machine, and we travel back to this, AD 82, and we go to Rome in Italy. And we arrive, and we come out, we step out of that, whatever that time machine is, and we look around, and you realize, wow, no cars. The air is so clean. You don't hear the sound of automobiles. This is like, oh, this is nice. And so, you know, and I take a few of you with me, so there's like maybe six of you from Westlight, and we're walking, and I'm acting as a tour guide. And as we're walking through, and we see this city of like a few, maybe like a mile away, and we're like, we're going to go that way. That's Rome right there. And we start walking towards that direction, and as we get closer and closer, you start seeing these majestic buildings, the, the kind of buildings that you've seen like in the textbooks. And as we're walking in that direction, a group of guards, they come towards us, and they surround us, and they're holding their spears. And they said, our emperor told us to escort you to him. And somehow the word has gotten out that we're from the future. And the emperor has some questions for you. And so they, gather, they, they surround us, and you're kind of scared, and I'm kind of like, don't worry, this is, this is how it always goes. And we're walking towards, 
Rome, the center, the epicenter of Rome. And as we walk in that direction, we walk under this, this arch. And as we're walking through this arch, you tap me on the shoulder. It's like, hey, Kotz, what is this? And I'm going to say, oh, this is the arch of Titus. There was an emperor from a few years ago. He just passed away. His name is Emperor Titus. And Emperor Titus, his, one of his greatest accomplishments, well, to them it was an accomplishment. To the world it was a tragedy, but to him it was an accomplishment. As we walk through the arches, I point at one of the carvings on the side, and this is what that looks like. It's like this is the time when Emperor Titus invaded Israel and destroyed their temple. They destroyed an entire religion as they knew it back then. In a few years, this is them ransacking their temple. That's the menorah right there. They went into the holiest place of the temple, grabbed what they could, and took it back home with them. And to Rome, that is a big accomplishment. So I said, this was built in honor of that emperor. And as, you know, and, and it's like this was built 12 years ago, so it looks brand new. This one looks kind of old, right? And so we walk through the arches, and we walk for another few minutes, and before you know it, you start to see this building. And you're like, I know what that is. I've seen these, you know, it doesn't look like this back then, right? I've seen this before. This is the Colosseum. And I would say, yes, it is. And this was also built around that time, about 12 years ago. And you're like, wow, it looks so nice. And you remember seeing these, these pictures, right? But, but what you... What's different from what, what you see in the picture on the screen up behind me is that back then it was covered, covered in marble. It was like so beautiful. It was mostly white. And, and you walk in, and, and as you're getting closer and closer to this building, you see all these entrances around the building. And, and you know, you're like, wow, gosh, there's so many ways in. Why, why aren't we going through that door? Why aren't we going through that gate? Why aren't we doing this? It's like it's because each of these gates, there's 80 of them surrounding, okay? Each of these gates means something. And they're going to escort us to the gate that they want us to go through. And they take us to the very east side, and we go in through there. And then I tell you guys, this, this door right here, this gate right here, is the gate that important senators, the VIP, and the emperor, they, they're all the only ones that's allowed to walk through here. Like, wow, we're honored guests. So as we walk in, we see a throne. And as we look at the throne, we see a person sitting on that throne. And you're like, this guy must be important. This guy must be the emperor. And the person that you see sitting on this throne is this guy right here. His name is Caesar Domitian. He's the emperor, Emperor Domitian. And it turns out, as we find out, he just took over the throne. His brother Titus just passed away. So, so here's the family tree. <clears throat> so he has a brother named Titus, the arch that we just walked through. He passed away after only two years of ruling, ruling Rome, the most powerful empire at the time. Okay. And after his brother had passed away, he came to power, and he will rule for 15 years. We're at the beginning of the 15 years right now. <clears throat> and as he's there, what you realize is that, that, that Domitian is not a really good leader. He's actually so insecure that the minute, he doesn't have any evidence, but the minute he even has a hint that somebody might be going against him, that there might be some plot against him, he has that person and the entire crew around that person killed just by snapping his fingers. That's the kind of guy he is. And all of a sudden, you guys are worried. Like, God, should we be in the presence of this man? He could have us killed. And are like, yeah, we have to be very careful what we say in front of him. Like, okay, we'll be very careful. And then you look around and say, wow, this place is huge. Look at all these people. Look at all the people. They're, you could notice that the people who are sitting on the top are wearing, like, like raggedy clothes because that's where the poor people sit. The richer people are sitting near the bottom. And you're looking around like, wow, I've never seen so many people in one place. 
like, yeah, this is, this is crazy, right? It's like, yeah. And so, you know, but you're still worried. Like, you're, you're amazed by this scenery, but you're still worried about that one guy that's sitting in front of you because he has the power to ki- have you killed in a few seconds. And so you tap me on the shoulder again and say, Kotz, Kotz, tell me more about this guy, Domitian. And I would say, okay, well, Domitian, his, he, I told you he has a brother named Titus. Well, next screen. Their father's name is, is Emperor Vespasian. Okay, Caesar Vespasian. He ruled for about 10 years. And the Emperor Vespasian, he had an issue with the people in Jerusalem. Because as much as this guy, Vespasian, wanted to be worshipped as a king, as a god, the problem here is there was a group of people on the side of the Mediterranean Sea who says, I, we will never, ever worship a human being because we worship Jesus. And so Vespasian wanted to do everything they can anything that he could do to make sure that these people were put down. And that's why they destroyed Jerusalem. Because they heard that there was this God of Israel that would never be put down for the sake of worshiping somebody like Vespasian. And so it was Titus's mission to make sure that he carried out Vespasian's wishes. And after Titus died, it was up to Domitian to do it. And so as we stand before Domitian, and Domitian's looking at us, Right? He looks down at us with a smile, and I said, I hear you're from the future. And I say, yes, we are. And then he asked this question. So how is my empire in the 21st century? And I realized, (laughs) how do I answer this question? (laughs) And so all of you are like, this is up to you, Kotz. (laughs) (laughs) And so with the most respectful tone, this is what I say. I start by saying this, Your Excellency, for you to understand the future of Rome... I must first rehearse a bit of recent history. And so I go on. On the way in here, we walked through the Arch of Titus, your brother, right? Because in in honor of Titus, because he's the one who went to Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. But I'm here to tell you in the 21st century, the God of Israel is still well and alive and he's still worshiped. But as for Rome, as for Rome, All the Roman gods, including you, who like to call yourself a god, right? The Roman gods, including you, are no gods at all. As a matter of fact, in the 21st century, the the god of Israel is actually being worshipped right here in the midst of this former empire. And now Domitian's like, huh. And everybody's silent. And so he leans forward a little bit more, and he asks this question, how can it be? How can this be? How could this have happened? And so I realized, uh-oh, I might have said something that offended him. So I look around to the big audience of the Colosseum, and I look at the VIP section, and I point at one person over there. He says, Your Excellency, right there, that guy right there. His name is Flavius Josephus. You probably know him. In our world, he is a famous historian from the first century. He will attest to what I'm about to say. Because he will, he will eventually write about what happened 50 years ago. 50 years ago, when at the time it was your great-great-great-great-grandfather, Caesar Tiberius. He was at rule at the time. Around his time of rule, there was a man named John who lived in Israel. And he was known as the baptizer. He submerged people. And he was an activist. He fought to make sure that, that the wrong things in the world were set right. And because he was doing that, he gained a group of followers. And people started asking him, John, we read the Old Testament scriptures. Well, back then it wasn't called the Old Testament. It was just the scriptures, right? He's like, we read the scriptures. 
We know that there's a prophecy of one that's going to come, that's going to set everything right. Are you that person? And this John fellow, he basically says, no, I'm not that guy, but I'll tell you something. That guy who's coming after me, he is going to be the one that's going to start this new kingdom. And his name is, and I told the emperor, Jesus of Nazareth. He will be called the Son of God, the King of the Jews, and eventually King of King, Lord of Lords. And at that point, Caesar stops me. And he says this, another king? Well, we must dispose of him immediately. I need to be the only king in this world. We need to get rid of him right away. And at that point, I'm like, oh, wait, wait, I got good news for you. Um, as a matter of fact, somebody did capture him and kill him. As a matter of fact, you see, what happened was Jesus, uh, at, the, at the height of his popularity, one of his own followers betrayed him, okay, and, and took him and then, and then in cahoots with the Jewish religious people, made sure that they were, he was handed over to one of your governors, uh, your former governors. His name was Pontius Pilate. Maybe you heard of him, right? And then because of that, this Jesus of Nazareth guy, he was crucified. And as you know, Caesar, crucifixion is the worst form of death that you created. It makes sure that not only does the person die, but he's humiliated and that he's going through the most pain. And it takes, you know, days sometimes for this person to die of hunger and thirst and suffocation and food loss. And let me tell you, Jesus of Nazareth hung on the cross and in three hours he was, he was dead. And, and I'm sure of it because the historic, her history book says that somebody stabbed a, a staff right into the side of him and water and blood poured out. But at this point, Domitian's like, are you sh-? he's like, are you sure he died? I mean, if you're saying that this movement is still alive beyond the Roman Empire, are you sure he really died at that point? And then I'm like, oh, this is going to get so hard. So I look around again, and over there I say, oh, it's like your excellency over there, that right there, Senator Tacitus. Again, he is another historian that's big in the, fir- in the world that I come from. And he will attest to what I'm about to say. The fact that when these people, that when... when when they went to, to the, the tomb of Jesus, there, was, there were guards there. They sealed the tombstone, and the stone was, was not movable by just one person. You need several people to move it. It was impossible for anybody to escape. But there were guards there. People were surrounding that area to make sure that nothing bad would happen there. And the reason is because there was an old prophecy that somebody will come back from the dead in three days. And so we made sure, like the Roman Empire, like your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather made sure that nothing will come out of that tomb. But you know what happened on the third day? People arrived at the tomb and they already found that the stone was rolled away. And they looked inside and the body was missing. Everything else was there. So the first question was, did somebody steal the body? And Tacitus will tell you that there was a huge investigation that was put out there. But as they looked through all the evidence, they couldn't make any claims that the body was stolen. But I will tell you what did happen. What we all thought was the end was actually the beginning of an unstoppable movement. You see, what happened was, yes, we were sure that he died. But three days later, the empty tomb was evidence that something happened. As a matter of fact, after that, there was a dozen group, there's a group of people, 11 to 12 people, who claimed that they just saw Jesus some of them say they ate with them. Some people say they went fishing with them. Some people say they went on a walk with them. Some people say they sat down and heard him teach. And the 12 people eventually grew to 100 people. 
A hundred people said, we saw Jesus walking down the street. We saw Jesus doing this. We saw Jesus doing that. And eventually that group grew to 500, eventually 1,000. 1,000 people who claim that they witnessed Jesus after his crucifixion. And this Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, kept on telling people, the kingdom of God is here. And what's crazy is that there's a group of cowards who follow Jesus, who hide and they would do nothing. They would try to hide in their own houses. But after the resurrection, they became brave all of a sudden. That they're willing to put their lives on the line to say, I can't deny what I saw. I saw Jesus walking with me. I ate with Jesus. I touched a hole in his hand in which he was crucified. I, I experienced this. I can't deny what I saw. And they're willing to put their lives on the line. Now, Domitian is starting to feel very uncomfortable. And so he also knows it's a public setting and people are listening to this. And he doesn't want to seem like a failure. And so without acting like he's being humiliated, he stands up and he says this. He says, I have triumphed over hundreds of kingdoms. I will do the same for this one. I will destroy this movement. And then I say, your majesty, for the next 230 years, not just your empire, but the one, that, the one that's come after it, all the, the next group of Caesars, they will, for 230 years, they're going to try to stamp out this movement called the church, called the Christian movement, the Jesus movement. For 230 years, they're going to kill a lot of Christians. As a matter of fact, most of them are going to die right here in this building. During this Domitian games, the, the, this games that you do, the, the, this, these things that you do in this, this Colosseum, you'll put Christians right here, you'll, you'll dip them in wax and you'll put them on fire. Yes, you will kill a lot of Christians, but this Jesus movement will never stop. As a matter of fact, the more you persecute them, our history books tell us, the more it seems to grow. Your efforts will fail. And then I look around. And I look around at this building again. And as I'm looking around, people are just silent because they don't, they, they don't want to make a sound because they know that with the next wrong words, everybody in this building could be killed, right? So they're like, choose your words carefully, Cots. But I'm not listening to them because I'm on a roll and I'm a preacher, right? <laughs> that doesn't mean I don't care about your lives. But I'm like, okay. What? And so I'm on, this, on the soapbox. I'm like, I don't want to just stop there. And I say, this Colosseum is a beautiful building that was built just 12 years ago. It's beautiful, right? But I want to let you know, the next few hundred years, all the marble off this wall are going to be ransacked. People are going to come in here and take the pieces apart. All the golden things, they're going to scrape off of their own, own well-being. As a matter of fact, this place is going to be deserted in a matter of a few hundred years. What you think is your glory is not forever. As a matter of fact, one day in a few hundred years, people are going to come in here and start taking some of the stones and bricks from this building carry it about 45 miles across that river, the River Tiber. As they cross that, they're going to lay it as a foundation for a new building that's going to be built. And that building over there is going to be 10 times the size of this one. And that building over there is going to be named after a fisherman who followed this Jesus guy. It's going to be called St. Peter's Basilica. And they're going to use the very bricks that's in this building to build the steps that lead up to the greatest building that Rome has ever seen. And now Tiberius, uh, 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 Domitian's like feeling really uncomfortable. But I don't stop there either. 
because I look at him, I point my finger at him like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm like, and that very throne you're stand, sitting on right now, you think this throne is so majestic? That very throne that you're sitting on right now is going to be one day gone. In the very place where that throne is, one day it's going to stand across. Looks like this. That's where the throne used to be. And I, I tell him in his face, Emperor Domitian, one day where that throne is that you're sitting on right now, there's going to be a cross. And you know, in this time, you believe that this, that this cross represents power and authority, that you could threaten people by persecuting them and killing them, and you get your way because you have that power. The world I come from, our God has taken that image, that symbol, and flipped it to mean hope. When people look at that cross, they're not going to think, look at the power that Caesar had. In my world, when they come into the Colosseum and see that cross where your throne used to be, they're going to look at it and say, look at that symbol of love. Look at that symbol of hope. The Caesar doesn't know what to say. So he kind of steps back and sits back on his temporary throne. And he puts his hand on his forehead and he's like, and he says this, well, let me get this straight. Let me just summarize what he just told me people from the future. <laughs> now, at this point, you're like trying to hold me back. You know, it's like when people get in a fight, you're like, no, no, don't do it. That's, that's, that's you guys right now doing it to me. It's like, you've spoken too much. So I said, let me get this straight. And he says this. So you're saying, my brother destroyed your God's temple, and one of my governors, Pontius Pilate, killed your king. And so this king, who's been dead for 50 years, is worshipped in Rome? And so, you know, now, like, I'm a little more calm. So I'm like, okay, i got to be more careful about what I say. And so I say, you will be remembered as the temporary king that many feared. But our king will be known as the eternal king that many loved. And then Domitian says, but how can this be? Did you have an army? is the reason why you're able to do this because you had faster horses or you had more weapons or your guards were stronger? And then I kind of smile and say, no, we didn't have any of that. As a matter of fact, Emperor, your men are the strongest in this whole, in the whole world right now. Your weapons are the strongest in the world. Your, your horses are the fastest in the world. There's no way that we could match up to your level of excellence when it comes to, to strength. Like, then how did you do this? And I would say, well, King Jesus, he taught his followers to love orphans. He taught them to treat women as equal. He taught them, he taught them to befriend outcasts. He taught us that if they're foreigners, to treat them as family. And at this point, you see a little smile on Domitian's face, and he starts to laugh. And everybody is like, should we laugh too? You know, like, what's, does he think this is funny? And then he says this, oh, brilliant, brilliant. You had me believing you right up to the very end of your tale. Now let's toast to the storytellers from the future. And they escort us out. And you're like, oh, cuts, you know, we got lucky then, you know. And then as we're being escorted out the same gate that we walked in through, I look at one of you and you're smiling. And you tapped me on the shoulder and said, that was cool. <laughs> and I said, yeah, 
what are you thinking? He's like, you know, class, this is what I'm thinking. And one of you say, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And that's what that, this says. I will build my ecclesia, my church, and the gates of Hades, death, will not overcome it. No matter how many people you kill, this movement will never end. Jesus promised us that. And as we're going out of the Colosseum, you look to me and say, that promise of Jesus, it stands in the, in the year 82. And you, being from the 21st century, you look at this and say, and it still stands in the 21st century. And here's the thing that I want you to know. The church didn't just outlast the greatest empire of its day. If it was meant to just outlast a world power, you just hide. But what Jesus meant to say was, no, 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 it wasn't just that. The church transformed it. It's one thing to outlast a world power. It's another thing to say, I act, this, 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 this power that has no chariots, that has no swords, this, this, this movement actually transformed the strong, the most powerful people of the day. If you read through your history books, you'll discover that when the world was talking about slavery and how that was the norm, Christians inspired a whole nation to start thinking that that was actually wrong. When there was a whole group of people who thought that men were better than women, there was a whole movement of Christians who said, no, 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 women should be treated as equal as men. They were able to not just outlast the Roman Empire, they were able to influence it. How? Well, as Jesus said, it's by loving our neighbors. It's loving our enemies. It's by doing the things that were so counterintuitive at that time. It's by loving on the people who were tossed aside. We're talking about baby girls. Back then, women had less value. And so when they had a baby, and if it was a girl, a lot of times they were just tossed aside. History books tell us that Christians were the ones who went to the streets to pick them up and nurture them and taught them about Jesus' love. And when they grew up and they married somebody, she had the influence over her own children to teach them the ways of Jesus. When people, when, there's two big plays that hit Europe in, in, Roman hist, uh, in, in European history. And both times, the history book says, while everybody was leaving their families behind, leaving their best friends behind because they don't want to get caught in this whole plague, history books tell us that Christians were the only ones running into the city to nurse them back to health. Yes, some Christians died. But they ran into the city because they didn't fear death anymore. Because they were like, if Jesus was willing to lay his life down for us, then the loving thing for us to do is to love on these people, well, even if it costs us our lives. The church transformed the culture of that time, not with sword, not with might, but through love. So what happens if we stop doing that? What happens if the church stops becoming about love? What if it becomes about something else? What if it becomes about we're right and you're wrong? What if church becomes all about power? We have the power to, you know, you know we want to make sure that Merry Christmas stays on, on the cups at Starbucks, and if it's not, then we're going to boycott. Like, what if church becomes all about that and not about loving our neighbor? What happens? Well, it turns out Jesus talks about that. He says this, you are the salt of the earth. You are the ones that add flavor to this world. You are the ones that changes the culture of this world. He says, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? His answer is, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. If we lose the very purpose of what a church is supposed to be, Jesus says, 
I don't know what to do with you. You are meant to be culture definers. You change the culture for the better. You make heaven on earth possible. But if you can't do that, if church becomes about, hey, that guy, he could preach. Let's go to his church. Hey, that, that worship leader, I, I like it when he sings. Like, hey, when I get greedy at this church, they smile and they make me feel like family. And these are all important things. Hey, after church, we have some great food. That, that's wonderful. I love that part. You know, I love potlucks, right? <laughs> right? But if church loses its saltiness, if it loses its purpose, he says the only good thing for the church is to be tossed so that people could walk over it. The very purpose of church is to transform culture. And Jesus says, don't forget that. And then he continues. He says, you, y'all, all of you, church, are, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. You guys are the light. Now, back in those days, when he talked about the light of the world, they thought about either the temple called Jerusalem, which wasn't destroyed yet when he said this, right? right? Or they were thinking about Rome. They called themselves the light of the world. But the people that Jesus was preaching to, these people would never consider themselves to be the light of the world. They're like, I'm just a fisherman. I just build tables. I, you know, I, I'm not the light of the world. What are you talking about, Jesus? And then Jesus continues. He says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds, loving your neighbor, taking care of the orphans, taking care of the widow, taking care of the people around you, loving in a supernatural way. Do that so that, what's the end result? And they will look at your good deeds and they will glorify your Father in heaven. People are going to look at your sacrificial deeds and say, there's something different about this movement. Something that's countercultural about this. Something that makes me feel like the world's going to be a better place tomorrow because of these people called the Christians. These people who looked at people who were considered, considered less in their culture, like women back then, and said, I'm going to treat them as equals. People might have said, you know, I don't believe in this whole Jesus thing, but I sure hope that my daughter marries one of these Christians one day. I, I don't know if I believe in this God thing, right? But I sure hope that I get hired by one of these Christians because they know how to treat people right. They change the world by loving the people and treating them fairly, one person at a time. Not by having a fog machine installed in the church sanctuary. You know, not have, by having an awesome light machine. Every single effort of love, even if it failed, like I loved on this person and I got no, no response from them, it's okay. Because when people see you loving people sacrificially, they look at that and say, wow. And they glorify God by seeing what you've done. In other words, the purpose of the church is to create opportunities to experience heaven together. In the first century, the church called the ecclesia did amazing things. The church was remarkable. In the beginning, I said, when we talked about the church in the first century, people would say, what? Today, when we talk about the church, we're like, oh yeah, that thing over there, that building over there. The church was never meant to be a building. When people used the word ecclesia, they didn't think of a building. They thought about a group of people as a movement. And so the question I have for us is this, are we the salt of the earth? Are we the light of the world? Are, when people look at Christians, is the first response, oh, those are the people who love radically. Because when I look around, I don't hear that response when I hear about people talking about, about Christians. I hear things like, oh, those are the people who are politically motivated to do something like, you know, whatever. Those are people who alienate people who are different from them. Oh, these, those are the people, you know, and, and it seems like the world knows us more for what we're against than what, they, what we're for. 
And if that's who we have become, then maybe we are losing our saltiness. Are we loving our enemies? Are we listening to the people who disagree with us? Are we putting somebody else before ourselves? Are we thinking about how can I sacrifice myself for the sake of the well-being of somebody I disagree with? I'm going to close with this one verse. This is a verse that's written by one of the first Christian leaders from the first century. And this is what he said about the Christian movement. His name is Paul the Apostle. He said, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. He says, no matter what it takes, make sure you stay on course. No matter what happens, never forget the true purpose of the church. You should be able to change cultures by loving people in a radical way, supernaturally loving on people that other people know it's hard to love. When the whole world is saying, that's our enemy, the Christian, the church should be the first ones that are saying, well, then we stand with you. That's what the church is supposed to be able to do. And that's why the church was remarkable in the first century. And I pray that Westlight does not become a church that forgets that. We have to be a church that worships Jesus and loves Jesus. And the way we live that out is by loving our enemies, loving our neighbors, loving the people who are outcasts, loving the people who are seen less in society than other people. Not even Hades, not even death can stop this movement. That's what Jesus said. Now next week, like I said, this is an introductory to this sermon series called Ecclesia. Next week, we're going to be talking about the Achilles heel of the church. Yes, not even death could destroy the church, but there is one, we do have a kryptonite. We do have a way to destroy this movement. And next week, we're going to be talking about that. Amen? All right, let's pray.